Almighty God, thank you so much that you invite us into your presence, that you call us to come and worship you. Uh, Thank you, God, that you have made us to worship you, and in that we find our truest joy and fulfillment. Uh, I ask that you would illuminate our understanding as we read your word. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Uh, Shape us and form us by your word this morning uh, that we might go from this place to honor and glorify you. Uh, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. So this psalm this morning, it's bringing us into the idea of worship, Uh, but it's also doing something else. Because one of the keys idea in this, in this psalm is the idea of being a people, belonging as a people to God. And that's significant in the world we live in today because we live in a unique time of isolation. Of course, we've just been uh, in a time of pandemic where there was unique isolation. But just as a culture, we, we are extremely isolated from one another. Uh, there's, uh, you know, a famous John Donne, uh, you know, 17th century poet, uh, you know, he talked about no man is an island, right? We were created to all be together. Um, but that's not the reality we experience today. There's a, a really famous um, sociology book uh, from the year 2000. It's very influential. It's called Bowling Alone. Uh, and the idea of the book is uh, 50 years ago from the time the book was written, uh, participation in bowling leagues was at an all-time high. So everyone was on bowling teams, uh, and bowling leagues were at an all-time high. At the time the book was written in 2000, bowling leagues had almost ceased to exist. But bowling was at an all-time high. So it wasn't that people had stopped bowling. It wasn't that they had stopped enjoying this. They were just doing it alone. They weren't doing it in, in a corporate community anymore. And that book is really about kind of the, the isolation and the, the individualism that has created the isolation we experience. And I think today we see that we all want to be a part of something greater than ourselves. We all want to be a part of a movement we can attach ourselves to. Right? Something greater, yet we can't seem to attain it. 
And, and what I would submit to you this morning is that there is only one community that can truly provide all of the things that we long for in this world that go against our isolation. Only one community that transcends time and space that can really root us in something greater than ourselves. But that community is centered on one thing, and that is worship. Worship. That community is a community of worship. So what does it mean to belong to that community? Right? What does it look like to belong to what this passage calls the people of God? To belong to the people of God. How do we, how do we attain that? What does it mean to belong to that people? Well, what this passage shows us is something very clear. To belong to the people of God, we must have worshipful hearts, not hardened hearts. To belong to the people of God, we must have worshipful hearts, not hardened hearts. And so we'll look this morning at worship in a few different ways. So we'll look first at the object of worship. What is the object of that worship? And then secondly, the community of worship, right? the community that that worship creates. And then lastly, we'll look at the heart of worship. What does it look like to have a heart of worship, a worshipful heart? So we must have a worshipful heart, not a hardened heart. So let's look first at the object of our worship. This psalm is so fantastic in telling us so much about who God is. Right? It, immediately it calls us to come worship. Oh, come. We see that several times in this passage. Come. Right? An invitation. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to who? The rock of our salvation. Right? The one who has saved us. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So there's this call, come, worship. And then there's, it's always grounded in that important word, for. For this is who you're worshiping, the one who made everything, the one whose power is so great that he spoke everything into existence. And not only that, the one who, even when you were rebellious, he saved you. He is a rock and a refuge, a rock of salvation for you. Now, that's the object of our worship. Now, you may, you may be here this morning, and you, you might think, well, worship, I, I don't know. That's not something I'm very interested in. That's not something I, re- I, I pride myself on kind of doing my own thing. I, I don't want to fall into that. Well, I, I want you to know this morning that I promise you, you are worshiping. What you, the option you have is what you worship. So we are all worshiping something because what worship is is ascribing ultimate worth and glory to something. The thing we worship is the thing we put our our hope and our trust in for our security, for our future. We're all worshiping something. The question is what? Right? We all are worshiping something. The question is what are we worshiping? And so I invite you to look at what does the psalmist call us to worship? But the one who made us. Uh, the one who has called us into a relationship with himself. You know, it talks about how this God is, he's the great God above, God above all gods. 
And in the next psalm, it actually says these, these gods, they're actually no gods at all, right? What you worship that are little g gods, they're actually not real. But you, you go to them for your real comfort, for your real hope. You know, I, I work with international students, and so I, I work regularly with Hindu students. Um, and I've gotten to know about a lot of different gods that are a part of their festivals, uh, part of the different uh, uh, celebrations that they have. Um, and so, and I've seen in that very specific way that we can have little g gods. But as I get to know these students, and as I'm sure you've seen in your own life and the life of your neighbors, they also have functional gods. And those functional gods are, if I can just get a good job, if I can just get the, the job I really want, then I know I'll be secure and, and I'll have a future and a hope. If I can just find the right boyfriend or girlfriend, if I can marry the right person, then I know everything will be okay. Right? We all have these functional gods, whether you're in here this morning as a believer in Jesus or not. And so my question for you is, what are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? And is it, this, is it the object of worship that this psalm talks about that is the only true object of worship, the one who made you, the one who has every right to tell you how to live, the one who designed you for a purpose? And in, a, in the most miraculous way of all, even when you rebelled against that purpose, loves you in grace, and sent his own son to die for you, that you could be reconciled to him. So to become a, the people, to, to belong to the people of God begins with the object of our worship, the thing that is drawing us and holding us together, which is God, right? this great almighty God that we worship. So the object of our worship is this great God. Now, what, what kind of community does worship of this God create? Right? We all want to belong somewhere. We want to belong to something. But if you've been in the world uh, for any amount of time, you know that everything you try to attach yourself to, to really find your value and worth, it fails you. Because the object of its worship is not worthy of praise, even if it's a good thing. Maybe for you, it's the, the sports team. I, I, I want to be the starter on the team, and I, I, I'm going to give everything I have to this team so that we can win the state championship, right? Well, those are good things. There's nothing wrong with winning a state championship, but if it becomes the thing that drives you in life, the thing that you value most, the thing that gives you your meaning, it will always fail you. And it will create a community where there's strife, Right? Because when you try to make something ultimate that's not, the community will never stay together. But this community that's created by worship of the one true God, though it has its many problems and though it goes through many trials, it will stand the test of time. I, I want you to know this morning, you are sitting here listening to this word that the people of God have been singing for over... 3,000 years. That's a long time. That is a long time for a people to be together. Um, you know, our country is, you know, around about 300 years old, right? <laughs> you know, give or take. So we have not a long history, 
But imagine having a people that was together for 3,000 years and even more. And this community will never fail because the object of its worship will never fail. Now, what kind of things mark this community that make it such a sturdy, everlasting community? Well, we see here in verse uh, 6 and 7, look at these verses with me. This invitation, oh, come, let us, this people of God, let us worship and bow down and let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So what do you have here? You see, you have this identity, this great God has made a commitment to you. He is our God. And that is a commitment that brings you security. That community, that covenant with God can never be threatened, right? He has made a promise to you, a gracious, compassionate promise that will hold you secure, that this community will go on and the gates of hell will not prevail against it because God has committed himself to it. And then we see here we're described as sheep, as as people of of God's pasture. I don't have much experience with with sheep, with farming. Um, I don't know a lot about that world. Um, But I do know enough to know that sheep are essentially wholly dependent on the shepherd. Without the shepherd, without the one taking care of it, sheep are helpless. Uh, They have complete dependence on the one that cares for them. And in the same way, we're we're being told in the psalm, look, God is your shepherd. You are the people of his pasture. He's feeding you with his own hands. Look at the kind of care and commitment he has to you. So your survival, your existence, your, the ability for you to, to keep going through trials and hardships, it's not dependent on your achievements. It's not dependent on how great you are as a people. What it's dependent on is the commitment and care of the shepherd, the one who cares for the pasture. And that is utterly unique. You will not find another community on the face of the earth that relies solely on the care and commitment of the object of their worship for their survival. And where belonging to that community depends not on anything you've achieved, does not depend on your birth, but it only depends on the gracious acceptance of the object of your worship. That is a kind of community we're all longing for, And this psalm is telling us we have that as the people of God. And that this community, uh, this worship creates a community that is wholly dependent on their good shepherd. Now, I think a great example of this, uh, this idea that the people of God is wholly constituted um, not by uh, what we've achieved, not by our social status, not by our birth status, not by um, the family we're in, uh, what country we're from, uh, but it's wholly dependent on the grace of God. There's a great picture of this in the book of James. Uh, So the epistle of James in the New Testament, in James chapter 1. And James, he talks about, he, he gives instruction for the poor and the rich. 
So you have in this community, already radical at this time, that there's poor and rich together in a community. Uh, That would have been totally unheard of. But he says he has different instructions for both of them. He says, uh, to the poor, he says, um, think often on your high status, On, on your exaltation from God. And he says, to the rich, think often on your humble status before God. So what what is James saying? He's saying, you are a part of this community not because you are poor or because you are rich, not because of what you've achieved, not because of the thing, uh, not because of your birth status, but because you have been embraced by God. Now to the poor who might feel crushed by this world and overlooked and like no one cares, well, God cares. And God has received you by his grace and God has saved you and God values you. So think on your high status. Now to the rich who might be tempted to think I'm here because of my great wealth, because of the power I hold, because of the achievements I have. He says, think on your low status. Why are you in this people? Only because the grace of God. Nothing, no merits you've brought, no achievements you brought but completely because God has shown you kindness and mercy. Now, a community that is based off that kind of message, that kind of object of worship, that's the community that can, that can transcend all of the trials we face. Because no one in that community is looking to what they're doing. Right? No one in that community is looking to their achievements. But what they're looking to is the object of their worship that gives them a new hope a new future, right? A new treasure, a new trust. So we have in this community of God, this community of worship, something that is really unseen in the world. And that is what this psalm, it's all about calling these people of worship into community together. All of these injunctions, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. For he, he, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. That is who you are, and that is who we are together. Now, I, I am uh, not naive. You may be in here this morning, and you might be thinking, well, that has not been my experience of the church. Um, and to you, I want to say, first, I'm very sorry. Uh, the church is filled with imperfect people like you and me. And I'm sorry that has been your experience. But I also want to show you this. The, that is not because the church has been, un, has been true to its identity, but because it has been untrue. And I invite you not to look at your past experience, but to look at the God who calls you into this community and to look at what he is doing in the lives of those around you and to look to yourself And to say, if I am in this community solely because of God's grace, not because I'm the best person in the room, not because I've climbed the ladder, I invite you to reflect on that and how that might change the way you think about church and your place in the community and your place among the people of God. Think on that. And I invite you to do that. And I think you'll be surprised what you find in God's grace. You know, one of, my, uh, one of my favorite pictures of, these, of this community um, 
it comes from, it comes from Acts 16. You know, the book of Acts is this, uh, it's about the establishing of the church. Um, and uh, Jesus sending out his disciples to go make disciples and establish churches uh, to the ends of the earth. Well, one of those great missionaries is uh, the Apostle Paul, who I'm sure you've probably heard of. Paul goes, one of his missionary journeys is to a place called Philippi. And uh, in Philippi, Philippi was a Roman city um, and uh, a a very high-powered city, and he's going to make disciples there. Uh, to establish a church there. And we see there are three different stories of people he encounters there. And they are three radically different people. Um, so first, he meets this woman named Lydia. And Lydia is, uh, she's uh, from a, a city called Thyatira, a region called Thyatira that's in Asia. She's a seller of purple goods, which means she probably has means, right? She probably has some form of wealth. Uh, she has a household, we're told, which means she probably has Uh, some wealth. And she comes and embraces Jesus through faith. And she actually hosts the disciples in her house. And then right after that, we see a story about uh, a young slave girl. And this girl, she is uh, being exploited by these men who are using her to gain wealth because she's used as a fortune teller, right? They use her through these uh, kind of uh, magical arts, but it's very exploitative. They're using her Uh, to make money through her fortune-telling. And uh, we see that Paul actually delivers this young girl uh, from what we're told the demon that is oppressing her, the spirit, evil spirit that is oppressing her. And she's delivered by the word of his power in the name of Jesus. Uh, And so you have this, this, you know, poor slave girl being exploited. Well, they go to prison after this um, because there was a riot in the city because of what they've done. Uh, the men that had owned this girl were very unhappy. And so they caused a riot uh, and said, hey, these men, they're causing a stir in the city. Paul and Silas, they're thrown in prison. Uh, God miraculously delivers them from this prison. And there's a man there who is uh, a jailer, the man who runs the jail. And uh, they tell this man about the good news of Jesus, that you can run to him for your rescue, for your refuge. And this man, who's a Philippian jailer, right? He's a man in in power in the Roman government. He comes and he places faith in Christ. Now, can you imagine these three people being together in in a community together? You know, what is drawing them together? It's only one thing, the object of their worship. They are in completely different places, completely different uh, statuses of achievement, birth. Yet they all belong to the one people of God drawn together by this object of worship, by this praise of the creator God who entered into a covenant relationship with them. So we've seen the object of our worship in the community that worship creates. And as I said at the beginning, the whole idea in this passage is that we are to have worshipful hearts, not hardened hearts. And that leads us to the final point here, which is the heart of worship, the heart of our worship. What does a heart of worship look like? Well, the last part of this psalm, uh, and as Mark read earlier uh, about this uh, episode in Exodus 17, it's a reference back to this episode, um, and it actually tells us a lot about what it means to have a worshipful heart. So you've 
you have this great object of worship. You've come now into this community of worship, and you're to have a worshipful heart. You know, that's why we have a call to worship every Sunday at church. Yet we see in this community, uh, what we see here, there's a warning about our hearts, about having a worshipful heart. I'll read it for you here. This is verses 8 through, eight through 11. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So you see here a picture of a hardened heart. And I'm so glad we read the story earlier of what happens. Because what's going on here? Well, you, you have this people that have been delivered. Right? They have been saved uh, from uh, their oppression in Egypt. Right? They've been delivered by God. And he says, you are my people and I am making a covenant with you to be my people, and I will be your God. I mean, can you imagine going through the experience of the Exodus where God has literally brought you through? He has divided the seas. In miraculous ways, he has saved you. Right? He has done something that is unimaginable, this kind of deliverance and salvation. Yet what do we see? Not too long after, there's grumbling and groaning going on in this community. And, you know, Mark, as he read this story earlier, you could see their desire to go back to Egypt. Why, Why did you bring us out here? To die? Is that why you brought us out here? Uh, is, and then at the end they say, is the Lord really among us? Is he really among us? And this is more than just doubt. This is unbelief. What you see from them is, this is not the real God. Whoever's bringing us through this wilderness now, this isn't the real God. Because I, I'm not getting the thing that I want. I'm not feeling the satisfaction I desire. This can't be the true God. So there's really unbelief in this community. And it's a hardened heart, a heart that has been calloused against God and his in this relationship with him. Now, uh, you know, uh, as Mark is going through Hebrews, uh, I'm sure he will expertly handle all of these ideas of warning. And so I'm not going to dwell too much on this because Hebrews really addresses this in a deep way. But you can't talk about this passage without addressing the idea that there is a warning here. There is a warning for the people of God. Uh, And I'd like for us to look at it just briefly, to really think about this and consider this. Um, You know, with every call to worship, with with every idea that we come to worship God, um, within that, there's also uh, a warning of fear and trembling. You are coming before the God who made all things, the creator of the earth, the creator of the heavens, the one who holds you in the palm of his hands, the one who has all power in the universe. Think about the one you are coming to worship. 
right? That should inspire awe and fear and trembling in us to some extent. Now, this is a God who has embraced us by his grace, but it is still the God who has made all things and has complete sovereign power. As this passage says, he is the great king above all creation, above all gods. He is a king and a judge. And so in this call to worship, there's implicit in it is a warning. And that warning is to watch your heart. Be watchful over your heart. Because just like people, there were individuals in this community who had experienced these great things, who had the privileges of belonging to this people, yet in their hearts, they begin to harden themselves against God. And there is this reality that you can grow up in a Christian home, you can grow up going to church your whole life, and never really know God. And that is a sobering, sobering warning, but we can't, we can't pass over that here because it's there. And what this warning is meant to do for us is not for you to then live in complete doubt and anxiety. Am I doing enough for God? Does he really love me? Have I really been accepted by him? But it is this, to be constantly watchful over your heart. To be watchful over your heart. What am I really trusting in? What am I really looking for to give me that ultimate purpose, that ultimate meaning? What am I ascribing honor and glory to? There's a warning here to be watchful over our hearts. It's a warning. But it's not a warning without a promise. It's not a warning without a promise. Because at the end, in verse 11, we see that there is a rest. It says, Therefore I swore in my, ma- in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now that is a part of the warning, but in that is also a promise that God promises us rest. Rest from our strivings. What is the opposite of rest? It's constant striving. Right? It's constantly trying to earn our place before God. And that is, that is very different than completely disregarding God, right? Than hardening your heart against him. A promise of rest. And that is what it looks like to have a worshipful heart. There's a few things here that show, what does it look like to have a worshipful heart? Well, one is trust, right? When you have a worshipful heart toward God, you have trust in God, He is the place you are putting your trust. You know, the Bible will talk about different Psalms. Don't put your trust in chariots or princes, uh, but put your trust in God. Now, I don't often put my trust in chariots and horses and princes because I don't have these things, but I often put my trust in my bank account. I often put my uh, trust in how well my family is doing, how, how good we look to the outside world. Right? Maybe for you, it's making sure my kid is in the the right programs. He's getting into the right colleges. These are good things. But when they become our ultimate trust, they become things that harden our hearts against God. So there's a trust here in God that a worshipful heart possesses. And then he says here, you can see, 
here in verse 10. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. They have not known. There's a, a worshipful heart has a certain knowledge and it's a knowledge of the ways of God. So there's a warning here. Maybe it has been six months since you've picked up your Bible. Maybe it's been a year since you talked to a friend or confessed your sin to someone you trust. Maybe it's been a long time since you sang the praises of God in the community of God. And there's a loss, right, of knowledge of his ways. And that can turn into a complete hardening against knowing those ways. I have no interest in knowing those ways. But the worshipful heart is a heart that knows the ways of the Lord, that reflects upon his ways, which is why week by week you come in here and you have this liturgy you go through as a reminder of the ways of the Lord, of his ways of salvation and grace and deliverance. So I will close with this. Um, these th- these, this thinking about warnings, it's, it's very heavy. It can weigh on us a lot. But as I said, there's a promise here. And the way to respond to warnings is not to look at your life to make a list and to say, okay, how can I get this all back on track? What are all the things I need to do? But it's to look to the object of your worship again. And I want for you this morning to consider the object of your worship. The God of all creation, who, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your Lord Jesus, who though he had every right, uh, he he was imperfect, uh, had perfect equality with God, yet he forfeited that high standing to come, to take on our flesh, to come in our place, to live a life that we could not live. You know, consider the life that Jesus lived, completely isolated often, abandoned in his time of greatest distress, abandoned by his friends, completely isolated, but living completely faithful to God, living a life of perfect worship. And not only that, but but gave his own life in our place, gave himself up to be made new, to bear our curse that we might be made new. Now look at that object of worship. And it's, it's, it's in gazing upon that that you respond to warnings. Look at the amazing grace and salvation of God, that he would become lowly, that we might become exalted and have our perfect union with him. So as the people of God, we are called to have worshipful hearts and not hardened hearts. And may you go to Jesus to find that worshipful heart that you have in him. Please pray with me. Almighty God, you are truly the maker of heaven and earth. You hold the seas and the mountains in your hands. You made all things. And God, we are the sheep of your pasture. We belong to you. 
And Lord, we ask that you would protect us from a hardened heart. As we look to things in this world to put our trust in them, to make them the object of our worship, Lord, protect us, we ask. And we are so grateful that we can have the firm assurance that in Christ Jesus, we belong to you. Lord, may we look to you to, to cultivate worshipful hearts that we might continue to walk with you in this perfect union we have with you as your people from now unto eternity. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.